maybe if we're not such great athletes, we're far too concerned about performance. And your best performance is when you don't really worry about the performance. And you just go out and exercise and you do it. That Triathlon Show, episode 43. Hello, what's up? Welcome back to That Triathlon Show, the podcast presented by scientifictriathlon.com. I'm your host, Michael, and for many of you, today's interviewee needs no introduction whatsoever. He has published more than 750 scientific books and articles. He has been cited more than 16,000 times in scientific literature. His book, Lore of Running, is considered the Bible of the sport. Much like we triathletes have Joe Friel's The Triathlete's Training Bible, runners have Lore of Running. He has been physically active all his life and has run more than 70 marathons and ultramarathons including seven comrades marathons, which is an 89-kilometer road ultra in his home country, South Africa. I'm talking about Professor Tim Noakes. So we have split the interview with Professor Noakes in two, and today's part, part one, is about the central governor model and how the brain limits what you can perform in triathlon racing and how you can train yourself to at least partially override that. You'll learn things like how big an impact the brain really has on your performance, what you should do and to try and override the perceived barriers to performance that your brain imposes on you, and how the balance between perception of fatigue and willingness to take on more fatigue ultimately determines how much you can push yourself in your race. In the next episode, episode 44, we'll then talk about LCHF, low-carb, high-fat diets, which is another area of expertise of Professor Noakes. And that will be coming out this Thursday if you listen to this show as it comes out on a Monday. But that's for then. For now, enjoy this interview with Professor Noakes and uh, make sure to take the opportunity to learn how massive a difference your mind can really make to your triathlon performance. All right, so on today's episode of That Triathlon Show, it's my great, great pleasure and honor to welcome Professor Tim Noakes to the show. And we've been trying to arrange this interview for quite a few months already. And uh, I apologize again on air to Tim for uh, messing up on my end a couple of times. But uh, Tim, it's uh, great to finally have you as a guest on the show. Thank you so much. It's my privilege to be involved. Thank you so much. Yeah, you're absolutely welcome. And uh, we won't go into too much detail on your background because I know that there are a lot of podcasts on that already. So the listeners that are not familiar with you already, they can go and look at that. We can link to that in the show notes. But just a brief uh, overview of who you are and what you've, you've done in your career so far as it pertains to endurance sports. Thanks very much, Michael. At, at school, I was not interested in running at all, but then I went to university and started rowing originally. And whilst I was rowing, I got into running. And then one day I had this fabulous run and I got the runners high when I ran more than 40 minutes. I'd never run that far. And then I realized that I was actually built for running, maybe not biologically, but at least my brain was involved, wanted me to run. So I started running and I ran many marathons and ultramarathons and I wrote the book Law of Running. First issue, 1985, then more recently, the last edition was 2002. And that's a very comprehensive book describing the physiology and the 
biology of running. And during this period, I was teaching at the University of Cape Town. I started what's called the Sports Science Institute, and I taught the first sports science course in South Africa. And really loved that until 2010, when suddenly I had this ephemeral moment and realized that the advice I'd been giving on diet was wrong. I'd been promoting this high-carbohydrate diet, and I realized that it hurt my health. I developed type 2 diabetes despite all the running because of a bad family history and lots of carbohydrates. And so I decided to change that. And now I've uh, been, for the last five years, writing and researching much more on nutrition. And so I've come to the point where I think nutrition, for in terms of health, nutrition is terribly important, probably more important than, than physical activity. Physical activity is terribly important to keep you healthy, but if you're eating the wrong diet, it doesn't help. And I'm a classic example of that. Yeah, thanks for that intro. It was uh, great. And uh, we will go into that diet uh, in a bit. We will start with, we, as we talked about off air, uh, we will probably split this interview into two different parts. So the first one will be on the central governor model, which uh, you mentioned your brain is made for running. And uh, that is one of the things that we will we'll go into in a bit more detail. We'll also, we've also had Samuele Marcora talking about a similar topic before on this show. And then we'll go into the diet side of things. And, and we'll probably have those in two different episodes. But so if starting with the central governor model and how your brain can potentially limit your or is what limits your performance according to the hypothesis you have a great TEDx talk that we'll also link to in the show notes where you talk about among other things Roger Bannister breaking the four minute mile finally and one quote that I got from that was that what happens in your life is what you will believe will happen is that what the central governor model is about and uh, what else is it to it? Well, let's go back to the history. When I started in the sports sciences, you see, fortunately, I came from medicine and I had absolutely no training in science, in sports science. So I had no preconception of what I thought I was meant to believe. And so when we started our lab, we were doing some very simple experiments. We didn't have much equipment and we couldn't do sophisticated stuff. And, and we were told that when you test someone uh, during a maximum exercise test, their oxygen consumption will plateau. In other words, although they can run a bit faster, their oxygen consumption doesn't rise. And I couldn't find that. We, we found it in a few people, but the majority of people we tested didn't happen. And so I said, well, if we can't see it, then it can't be happening. And that must mean that something other than oxygen is so-called limiting these athletes. And so in 1987, I wrote the first article where I questioned this whole theory. And I even showed by going retrospectively to A.V. Hill's work, because it was A.V. Hill's theory, I went back to his published work and was able to show that, that he never showed that there was this plateau phenomenon. So therefore, I knew that it, there was something wrong with the theory. And then over the next period of another 10 years, I eventually came to realize that the body must be homeostatically regulated during exercise or else we'd all die when we exercise. And so I made that proposal. And then eventually it, it struck me that what we were missing in our understanding of exercise performance was that if you want to run faster or exercise harder, you must recruit more muscle. And to recruit more muscle, you must use your brain. And therefore, I suddenly realized that the brain's in charge by regulating how much muscle you can recruit. So that when you're exercising harder, you recruit more muscle. And when you're exercising less hard, you recruit less muscle. So that was what I came up to. And then we built the central governor model around that. And then we were able to prove it by showing that if you start people exercising in the heat or you introduce an oxygen deficient environment, they'll slow down. 
They slow down long before they get damaged. So that showed that the system worked in anticipation. So no athlete runs to their death. The brain says, okay, if you've got to run 100 meters today, this is how fast you run. If you're running 1,000 meters, this is how fast you run. If you're running 100 miles, this is how fast you run. And if the environment changes, then your speed will change. And if your physical condition changes, it will also change. So that in a nutshell is the, the central governor model. It says that the brain regulates performance in anticipation to make sure that you don't harm your body. So what different, you mentioned heat there and, and oxygen def, uh, an oxygen deficit as, as some of the variables that may change that anticipation. Are there, what, what are some more practical everyday examples of things that may, may regulate that situation? Well, I think it's the psychological factors become much more important. So that to get to the top of your performance range, so we all have a range of performances, let's say, because of our genetics and the way we trained. But on top of that, to make the last one or two percent, you add the psychology. And that's what we've just been looking at more recently. And it's very clear to us that, that there's another component, and that's your affect. That's your emotion. It's how you feel about what you're doing and how you feel about your performance. And as soon as that changes, your performance either goes up or goes down. And it's interesting, the, the person who's done this research is a Dr. Andreas Venhorst from Germany who's been on our labs for a couple of years. And, and he's a very, very good triathlete, and, but he could never win races. And he'd always come fifth or fourth because he'd come to the race, he'd look and he'd see, gosh, there are four guys here are better than me. I'm going to come fifth. And of course, he'd come fifth. And then one day something happened and he won the race because the other five people who should have beaten him had bad days. And so he suddenly won without expecting to win. And he said he started leading the race with 15 kilometers to go in an, in an Ironman triathlon. He said it was his easiest race ever. He just <laughs> he couldn't believe it. And then he realized that the, that the conscious thinking also has a very big part to play in, in performance. For sure. And that's something that many elite coaches, uh, very experienced coaches that we've had here, has mentioned that how big a part psychology really plays in, in your performance. And uh, for example, Joe Friel mentioned psychology being, he's kind of your colleague in the fact that he's written the lore of triathlon, but it's called mm -hmm. the triathlon training Bible. But yes. uh, I, think, I think that those two are very analogous books in, in their respective disciplines. And Jim Vance also talked about uh, how your confidence on the race start line really is the biggest determinant of your performance on the day. Yeah. So what, what are some practical things that you can do then to, to make sure that that psychology component is uh, going to affect you positively? Well, the, the, what we've really added in, this lit in the literature, and we've got a paper coming out quite soon, is that once you get past, that you get your mood changes. And so that's a real issue. What we found was we had people race against each other. They were matched at the start, and we found that the, the winner in this particular match-off would outperform his best performance beforehand in the laboratory, obviously not the best performance in his life. And the guy who came second, would his performance would drop by about 2% or so. So as soon as you get past, you're in trouble. So that that's another issue that we don't fully understand. But my point is that very few of us actually win, ever win the race. We generally come second or lower. So the winning of a race is an unusual event for, for the average person. But it's very clear that if you perceive that you're losing for whatever reason, your performance gets considerably worse. And so You know, I don't think we, or at least I don't understand how we change that, but the elite coaches know that's how they produce these athletes who are able to do it. So I can't offer you, I can't offer you any suggestions, but it just, it just happens. And I think the best coaches are the ones who can extract that, the self-belief. 
So I think a lot of the training that we do is to ensure that we, we build our own self-belief. And how do you do that? Well, I think let's take an example of a Tour de France cyclist. They do it by doing those long hills and doing the long days. And eventually it becomes second nature and they understand that they can do it. But even amongst that group, there's only three or four who can actually win the race. And so they are different in, in other ways that we, we don't fully understand yet. And it, it's not just physiology. I, I'll bet if you were to look at the top 20 or 30 Tour de France cyclists, their biology, you wouldn't tell the difference in their biology. But it's just the difference in the desire and the way they're brought up and maybe many other factors as well. Yeah, yeah. And and how does this apply to the everyday athlete that, as you say, may not be winning, but you mentioned the perception of loss or perception of losing. Can that be like being behind on your, uh, compared to your target goal race pace or something? Would that affect your performance negatively? Oh, absolutely. And and I think that maybe we're far too, if we're not such great athletes, we're far too concerned about performance. And your best performance is when you don't really worry about the performance. And you just go out and exercise and you do it. And uh, that's, that's the best way to do it. Be, be the other, there's another thing that we identified is that's the, the point where you start to quit. And when you realize actually it's, or your brain decides it's not worth the effort anymore, the discomfort you're feeling is not worth the effort you're putting in. And that, that's a crucial moment as well. And we used to call that hitting the wall. It's not hitting the wall. It's you, you, your brain decides and you logically support that decision that actually the pain is too much to continue. I think what I tell people is that you must never quit. That, that's the key because it's your brain is just is playing games with you. And don't ever quit because you're going to regret that. And secondly, on that point that we've just raised, that you must always have a secondary goal. So, okay, you're not going to break two hours in the marathon, but you can still run two hours, 10 minutes or something and have a secondary goal so that that'll keep you not quitting or not having this, this, failing, this failing brain approach. Yeah, I think something like a, a process goal is very important to have because you can something can go wrong. You can have a mechanical on the bike, but then you can and you can make it impossible just because of that bad luck to to reach your your time goal. But then your process goal can be to whatever happens, keep giving one hundred percent. Exactly. I think that the point we make is that that your emotions are terribly important, but and fatigue is purely an emotion. The fact that you feel tired. It doesn't tell you that physically you're actually in that condition. You, you, you don't have to accept that. You just say, I'm not going to quit. So I tell my, the rugby teams that I work with that rugby is a, is a team sport. And I say, listen, don't come off the field and tell me you're tired. Because I said, if you come off dead, then, I'll, then yes, you're tired. But not if you just come off. Because the fatigue is purely an emotion that we use as an excuse. You see, often we come up and say, you know, I, I didn't win this race because I was fatigued. In fact, no, you use that as an excuse. Because there came a moment in the race where you, where you quit emotionally. And now you to justify it, you say, well, I was just too tired to do it but that's not the case your brain decides how tired you are so i think if i understand correctly you you have two balancing forces here you have your perceived fatigue which is regulated by your emotions uh, and then you have how much fatigue you're willing to take on and that is uh, based on for example how important that goal is for you so there are basically two areas that you can work on like making that goal bigger and more important and and so which will allow you to take on more fatigue before you decide it's not worth it anymore and then also 
practicing how to be able to reduce that perceived fatigue. Would, would that be a correct assumption? Yeah, I think that's an excellent description that exactly what, what our work would suggest is true. And which of the two, like balancing the goal and how much fatigue you can take on versus actually perceiving less fatigue is, uh, shall we say, easier to work on or is, makes more sense to work on or is, are both equally important? Yeah, you're asking a physiologist psychological questions. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> so I like to speak from a scientific background and if I, don't, if I don't have the scientific evidence, I don't know. So the answer is, obviously you need to look at both of them, but which one is more important, I don't know. Goals are terribly important and I've worked with teams who should never have been successful and they've been incredibly successful and we've managed to do that by so i was saying that i've worked with teams that have been successful should never have been successful and we we did that by giving them a goal that they believed in and believed that they it was possible to achieve that and we converted them from from losers to winners and so i think you have to explain to people why are you doing that? If you understand why you're doing it, then you will do it properly or you'll do it the, to the best of your ability. And the bigger the why, the, the better the performance. Yeah, this is something that we discussed at length with Brad Stolberg in episode 28 of the show as it uh, relates to purpose. And uh, his book, t- uh, together with Steve Magnus, Peak Performance, goes into this as well. So so it's uh, that's uh, a great parallel to, to this, what you just said. One thing that I want to go back to is... How many, you mentioned 2%, and is that just a figure of speech, or do you actually have some quantitative data for how much you are held back by, by your emotions and, your, and the central governor, essentially? Yeah, those are the actual data that we collected, that when the person started losing, that their performance was 2% worse than their performance when they were just competing by themselves. So in those experiments, we had people compete in the laboratory 70k time trial by themselves it wasn't a flat time trial it was also hilly because that's terribly important as well because if it, the course is flat your biology is different than if you if it's hills your pacing is different obviously but my point is that that if you go on a hilly course there you do different things when you go up the hill and down the hill when you're tired than you do on a flat course but so anyway so that's the point and when they competed by themselves and when they competed against another person, their performance went off 2% when they lost. Whereas the person who leading, their performance went up about 1.5% from, from winning. So when they were winning, they got a, a boost to go faster. And when they were losing, they got a boost to go, uh, they got a, something to slow them down. And that's so obvious, but we did document it. And then we documented the physiology changed the moment the person started losing, their biology changed and it became less favorable. And the other thing we found for the first time was that the, the better performers actually have the better emotion. They, they feel good about it all the time, even though they're exercising harder. So I was always raised to say that the elite athletes, actually, they, it's more painful for them. Well, we showed that that's not the case. They actually enjoy it more, and they might be suffering less discomfort. And that, that would be right, because their brain is keyed in exactly to do this. They prepared for it, and... and so why should it be more taxing than for everyone else? Perfect. And uh, about this, that, that was a perfect summary of, the, of, of some science that you've done. And 
Are there any other really important studies that you can just quickly give us the abstract of like you just perfectly did for that one that we should know about as it <laughs> pertains to the central governor? Well, I think that's, all, that's how we've advanced the central governor model quite substantially by, by putting in this, this other model that there's an emotional component and, and there's also the stopping wish. And when they combine, then you're in trouble or when, they, when they're good, you, you will do better. It's actually a pain model. It's exactly how the way humans cope with pain. And when you've got pain, you, you assess it, you, you respond emotionally to it, and then you decide how you're going to cope with it. And that's exactly what happens in, in athletics, except the difference is that you produce the pain. But, but I think it's not actually different because there was work done in the First World War where about 50% of people with these horrendous wounds did not need morphine. So they weren't feeling pain, although they had these horrendous wounds. And so the way we respond to pain is not uniform. It's very, very different. And for many people, they don't actually need medication because they, they don't perceive the pain as, as others do. Is that a question of pain threshold or pain tolerance or both? I think it's much more complex than that. I think you just block out the pain and you don't feel it. I mean, these are people coming in with, with wounds to their legs and sh gunshot wounds to their bodies and, and they didn't feel pain. But by all accounts, we would say, but there was source of pain was the injury, but they didn't feel it. So they block it out at either in the spinal cord or at the, in the brain. So you're right, they don't, they don't perceive it. They just don't perceive it. Mm. Okay, so uh, finally, let's wrap this part of the interview up uh, with a few practical, very short bullet point takeaways for the listeners. What uh, should we know about the central government model? And more importantly, what are some few simple action steps we can take to, uh, to try to push past those limits imposed by our brains? I think the most important is decision is, well, how important is this race to you and how much effort are you prepared to put in? I remember one of the people who really influenced me was Mark Allen, and he failed in the Ironman Because he said, you know, I would go to the race and I would say, well, this is what I'm prepared to train for this race. And then he realized that if he trained that way, he would only ever come second or third or fourth. He needed to change that. And he had to realize that this race demanded more. And when he went home and trained harder, then he started to win the race. So that it's very important. How much effort are you prepared to put into the event? And for most of us recreational athletes, we actually have a time limitation. So we must be realistic with our goals. That's the key. And, and, and one of the best things is perhaps not to, to have too strong goals. Because once you have those goals and you don't achieve them, then you, you feel that you failed. And when I look at people describing uh, the big race that they trained for, 90% of them come away dissatisfied that they didn't do it. Well, they didn't do it right because probably they didn't train as much as they would want. If you want to, to achieve, you unfortunately have to train. So that you have to balance that up. But once you've balanced that up and you've decided that this is your goal and you're going to do enough training for it, then you have to believe in the outcome. You have to be absolutely certain that this is what you can achieve. And that, that's where the coaching comes in and, and convince you. The simple definition of a coach is someone who has more belief in yourself than you have in, in yourself, than the athlete has in himself or herself. And that's terribly important. And I didn't understand that till I got involved with good coaches and they, they showed me that's how you do it. Yeah, a good coach can, can show an athlete that 
based on this training that you have done, you should be able to to perform the, at this level in, or you will perform at this level in your race. And that, that is something that, that can give you that certainty that you may not have otherwise, that you will actually achieve your goal. So, but of course, as you say, having realistic goals is very important. So it's important to, to discuss that as well, your goals with your coach and, and not on your own set completely unrealistic goals that will set you up to be losing and, and that will put you in that performing worse mode that we just discussed earlier yes indeed and and then so that's that's crucially important and in the competition you must understand that you never quit and that what you're feeling is just your own thoughts and you've got to talk to yourself and you've got to understand listen i don't have to listen to what you're telling me i'm not tired i don't have to believe what you're telling me you're just making it up to try and make me make me slow down and i'm not going to slow down Perfect. That wraps it up for one thing that I'll inject with, by the way. I just recently did a 5K with my Garmin screen taped shut, so I didn't see a thing. Yeah. And I actually had a really great race. And that's something that, that I think is a good exercise that people can do. Because you might be limiting your performance by seeing what pace you're running if you are running at a pace that you you think that that's the maximum you're capable of, but you're actually capable of more. So, so that, that might be one way to do that. Yeah, indeed. Let's make the point that the Kenyan, the great Kenyan runners, to, when the, to get to the top, they don't listen to Garmin's and heart rate monitors. They just race each other. Yeah. And, and there it's who comes first. That's what's important. It's not the time or the distance. It's who comes first. And so they have a different attitude to, to running than we do. We kind of run to, let's say, to finish the 5K. They don't. They run as hard as they can the first K. And if they finish the first K, they do the second K. If they finish the second K, they do the third K. That's how they, that's how they get, get really good. So when the time comes and they can run 5Ks, they're running it very fast from the start. Wow. As I talked about before, I find psychology, mindset and similar topics extremely fascinating. So if you're even half as interested in, in this topic as I am, then listening to this interview was probably time extremely well spent for you. I hope that was the case. This interview with Tim Noakes has been many, many months in the making, but due to an internet outage in not Cape Town, but Helsinki, believe it or not, Take One failed. And then, embarrassingly enough, I have to admit that I completely completely messed up uh, the time zones and uh, didn't figure out that South Africa do not use daylight savings. So I was an hour late for our interview, or early, I should say. Yeah, I was early. So we missed take two for that reason. And uh, I'm just super, super grateful to Tim for having the patience to to make it to take three and, and finally have been able to talk to him. And funnily enough, we had a little bit of a technical issue in the final part of episode 44 with the LCHF part. So, And Tim graciously agreed to come on and redo those eight minutes or so that we missed towards the end. So, so we're, we still have that to do at the moment of this recording, but uh, that will be done by the time that you listen to that episode. So for some reference material relating to this episode, make sure to check out uh, that triathlon show episode 17 with Samuele Marcora, which was also on pr- the exact same topic, essentially, the psychobiological psycho- model of performance that Samuele Marcora proposes, which is very similar to this central governor model. In fact, I should probably do some bit of digging it to see what exactly sets them apart, because they're very similar. But in any case, that is a very similar topic that I highly encourage you to go and listen to 
scientifictriathlon.com forward slash TTS17 is the URL for that episode. And then also on episode 28, we had Brad Stolberg on to talk about some of the same things that we talked about here, uh, especially having a purpose in your training and racing and how important that is. And that is scientifictriathlon.com forward slash TTS28. And you can also find both of those episodes from thattriathlonshow.com, which will take you directly to the podcast page where all the episodes that we've done will be linked up. Again, remember to tune in on Thursday to hear part two of this interview where we discuss low-carb, high-fat diets with Professor Noakes. The show notes for this episode, as usual, will be found on thattriathlonshow.com. Be sure to check them out. Also, be sure to send me emails with questions and feedback about this or coming episodes uh, or anything, really. I love discussing and having conversations with you. My email is michael at scientifictriathlon.com, and that's Michael with a K. If you enjoy the show, then uh, please, please go to scientifictriathlon.com forward slash rate. And uh, I think that if you take a minute to rate and review the podcast, that will give you very good karma that you can use in your next race, I promise. But until Thursday, keep training smart and keep loving triathlon.